Okay. Uh, hi, everyone. This is ASS233, Myth and Ritual, and it's lecture for week three. The lecture is entitled Greek Cosmogony. It's a series of, dis it's a discussion, too, about the nature of Greek myth in different ways, different aspects of it. What I want to do in the lecture today, I want to take note of the fact that we are not talking about a singular uh, mythical tradition. This is a multiple tradition. Uh, it's very old. It's had stuff added to it, moved in different directions and so on, along with multiple interpretations. I want to recall that distinction that I drew last week between a mythology as a body of myths and a mythology as a commentary on those myths. And that the mythology and the commentary on those myths is often of a mythical nature, so that you have myths commenting on other myths and so on. So when you've got something like that going on, you recognise that sort of defining the boundaries of what constitutes a mythology, ancient Greek mythology, can become problematic. Some mythical traditions are more easily, I think, bound than others. But one of the points that I would make is that very rarely, they're, they're always moving and working with each other. So make that point. Then I want to make a point about how we think about the nature of the mythical beings in these ancient Greek mythologies. Do we think of them as projections of ourselves, as kinds of human beings? Um, or do we think of them as reflecting more processes, themes, ideas, uh, conditions rather than people? And it's their relationship with each other, the dynamics of their relationships with each other that are the critical issue, not necessarily the individual beings themselves. And so it's a push for an understanding of relational being rather than discrete being the distinction I would draw. I want to make that point as a general point for thinking about mythical beings. Uh, and I choose to talk particularly about the Greek tradition because the Greek tradition is not only a mythical tradition that is arguably best known to us, better known than, than a whole host of other mythical traditions. But also because it's a mythical tradition where the characters are behaving in such a way that they seem to be just following their noses and doing whatever they like. They, they have a certain kind of extraordinary amorality um, uh, that kind of screams out that you're that you're looking at an episode of a soap opera. But I'm going to argue against that idea. So take on a certain mythical tradition that looks most like that in order to make a case for it not being like that is, is why I want to think about Greek myth. And then I want to develop a, an argument, uh, somewhat idiosyncratic, but I want to develop an argument about the uroboric nature of uh, this Greek mythology. Now, uroboric is from uh, the name for the uh, for a type of mythical figure, which I've misspelt here. Uh, it should be all O's, O-U-R-O-B-O-R-O-S. But anyway, not a big one, not a biggie. Uh, the Ouroboros is the serpent that eats itself, the serpent that eats its own tail. And it's a powerful symbol of what is called eternal return or eternal recurrence, the eternal recurrence of the same. And it's a critical element, I'm going to argue, uh, in the Greek myth. It's also a critical element in many, many mythical traditions as it is a critical element in the myth 2001 A Space Odyssey. So we will be addressing it in different ways. So I'm wanting, wanting to introduce it here. Uh, and then I'll be taking up the question of Prometheus 
um, and the origins of humanity and mortality. Okay, so the provenance of these traditions. Let's just start with a quotation from uh, the classical scholar Jean-Pierre Vernon, uh, a colleague of Marcel Detiens, um, in, uh, in his um, essay, The Society of the Gods. Uh, and he says, an inquiry into origins of Greek myth is always difficult in any, in any inquiry, he says. In the case of the Greeks, we are completely in the dark. So we don't try to understand where these myths came from because they came from multiple directions. We get attempts to systematise these mythical traditions, to give them a kind of a sense of unity um, and coherence. And the work that we're working with today, which is Hesiod's uh, Theogony, is arguably a later work that is precisely that, an attempt to systematise a vast and variegated um, array of myths that come from different um, different parts of the world. Now, I put up a picture here of what is known as the Fertile Crescent. We're talk- also known as the Cradle of Civilization, somewhat loaded term, um, because it then presents as the Cradle of all civilizations, which I don't think is right. Um, but we're talking, when we look at this part of the world, which runs through uh, what is now, you know, the eastern parts of um, Turkey, um, right down through to um, what is now Lebanon, Israel, um, and then go across a bit further, you would see Egypt, and then stretching across into into Syria and um, Iraq. Uh, and we're talking here then about the source place of, of some of the oldest civilizations. Now, I'm very particular about my use of the term civilization. It refers to modes of life, um, settled, um, agricultural, oftentimes urban, maintaining storages, using writing, those, those sorts of features. And we can think of things like the Sumerian. Empire. So we're talking about some of the oldest um, uh, known civilizations. Now, as they're old and as they're civilized, they were also trading. And they're trading not only goods, they're also trading ideas. And when you think of those, when you think of the commerce of people and ideas, um, then you can recognize that the sources of something like the ancient Greek mythological traditions are going to be many and varied. What's really striking is that for a very, very long time in uh, comparative religious studies, in classical studies, etc., ancient Greece was seen as the kind of centre of its own universe. It was not seen as somehow connected to the Fertile Crescent. Um, uh, And this was part of a process that kind of led to um, the uh, incorporation of the ancient Greek mythological tradition into the broader category of classical studies and kind of the appropriation then of the classical uh, world, Greece, Rome, into Western Europe, so that the Greek traditions become connected to the Roman traditions and then become the kind of property of the Western European traditions. The Western Europeans, of course, being a bunch of um, uh, of illiterate, um, uh, uh, you know, um, non-participants in this civilised world at the time that we're talking about. So it's a bit of a conceit that they would then claim that ownership. 
But there's been in more recent years, you know, and it kind of staring you in the face, but in more recent years, there's been more of a scholarly recognition that this approach is a highly um, Western and Western-focused approach that is not alive to the idea that it wasn't that Greece was the centre of the world and at the kind of eastern end of the centre of the world, Western Europe, but rather it was on the fringes of West Asia. Um, and here's a telling one. You know, I wrote a paper a couple of years ago and I was talking about Persian involvement in trade in the Indian Ocean and Sri Lanka. And so I was talking about West Asia and the editor of the book um, sort of drew this to my attention and said, oh, I don't think we can call it West Asia because I don't think our readers will know where that is. <laughs> and I said, oh, you, don't, you, want, you want it to be called the Middle East, do you? <laughs> East of where? <laughs> this is the continent of Asia and this is the western end of it. Uh, but that kind of Eurocentric or Western European conceit uh, is still with us, I think. I just draw your attention, though, to an interesting American-based classical scholar, Carolina Lopez-Ruiz, um, and her works. Uh, she's part of the, 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 the movement, if you like, to uh, reconsider re, re, re uh, the Greek traditions and the roots of the Greek traditions. Um, so there's, you know, there's good work being done. And this is part of the problem that they're up against. I just draw your attention to this as a brief aside uh, and make reference to uh, an old article by a dear friend of mine who started life as a classical scholar and then became an anthropologist and a specialist on Greek society and culture. And he wrote a paper in the late 1980s called The Triumph of the Ethnos, uh, talking about precisely the nature of Greek ethnicity and how Greek ethnicity in the 19th century was effectively denied to the Greeks by Western Europeans. Um, and uh, so that you had Western European scholars saying, oh, well, the Greeks of today are not the ancient Greeks. Uh, they're basically the descendants of the of the of the 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 West Asian tribes that came in and conquered Turkey and and Greece, and these, they're just the descendants of them. And so they produced a racist um, argument to say that the Greeks of the 19th century were not Greek. And um, there's been a you know uh, part of the whole effort to fight for. Um, Greek national identity uh, is, is, has been in part a fight to reclaim Greek heritage um, because in the process of saying, oh, the Greeks aren't Greek, was also a process of saying, and their heritage is not their heritage. And so you find, for example, uh, the infamous uh, Elgin marbles um, and that's an example of those Elgin marbles on the bottom picture on that slide. Uh, these marbles were basically taken, cut down from the Parthenon in Athens with the permission of the then rulers of Athens, the Ottoman, the Ottoman, um, state, uh, who said, oh yeah, you're welcome to it. And this Englishman took them and sold them to the British in 1816. And the, and the whole idea was that Britain, which had just defeated Napoleon in the Battle of Waterloo and was now reigning supreme as the new king, king, of, the, king of the castle, was claiming that its political system was indeed the inheritor of the great ancient Greek traditions, much more the inheritor of the ancient Greek traditions than the Greeks themselves. You kind of look at, and it's just staggering. And, and just on that note, I note that um, tomorrow is the 200th anniversary of Greek independence. So, happy Independence Day, Greece! Uh, 200 years tomorrow since the War of Independence. 
I also find it staggering that this is the only national celebration and national day that's held at the Melbourne Shrine of Remembrance, which is otherwise a war memorial about wars in which Australia has participated. So you might have uh, a, a reclaying ceremony by people who are Russian, of Russian background, people of Russian background who fought in the Australian military. It always has that reference. The, the exception is Greek National Day, Greek Independence Day, which is held at the Shrine of Remembrance, and I find that very interesting. But when I look at the Shrine of Remembrance and I look at the architecture of the Shrine of Remembrance, I can see that whole process of the ownership of heritage, the sources of cultural traditions, etc., because there's a lot of Greek themes in that architecture. But anyway, so this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a mess, okay? We're talking about a mess of different cultural traditions when we're talking about Greek mythology. Now, in understanding that, in appreciating that important difference, we should also be opening ourselves to the idea that the figures of these myths are not people like you and me. So don't jump to conclusions. And this is something that Vernon is also very strong about, and this is why I'm, again, quoting him. And I say, uh, quoting uh, quoting Vernon, the religious thought of the Greeks made no such clear-cut distinctions between man, sick humans, and his, their internal world. The social world and its hierarchy, the physical universe, and the supernatural world or society of the beyond made up of the gods, the demons, the heroes, and the dead. Okay, so no such clear-cut distinctions in all of these categories. And with that, a tremendous sense of fluidity, of movement between these categories of being. Now here, Vernon colleague of Detienne is echoing the sort of similar ideas that Detienne was making in his Gods of Politics um, article that we read last week. But now we need to start thinking about, okay, so we're going to start talking about particular mythical beings. But in the process of talking about these particular mythical beings, how are we to understand their relationship? And the critical idea is an idea of their dynamics, the dynamics of their relations. And then with that, we need to let the myths be themselves. So just open ourselves to the myths as they are. Just take on the details. And don't be jumping to conclusions before we start. And so Vernon says, thus, the ancient Greek, me, that's my edition, hence the square brackets, the ancient Greek religion and its pantheon can be seen to be a, a system of classification, a particular way of ordering and conceptualizing the universe, distinguishing between multiple types of force and power operating within it. Hence, a dynamics approach. A dynamics approach looks at a mythical being, like a god or a hero, and instead of thinking of that god or hero or titan as a being like you or me, we think of them as an embodiment of a particular force of the world. So we don't think of them as a person so much as a quality. And as a quality, a quality in the dynamic processes of the world. If you like, the weather, uh, the seasons, the cycling of time, etc., in those terms, then, we don't start trying to reduce these gods to their motives. 
We don't try to understand the real motivation why a God does what a God does. And here we address and confront directly the problem of Alan Dundas's argument and Alan Dundas's approach, which we looked at in week one. Because what Dundas does is he jumps immediately to try to understand the motives of the mythical beings. Why does the mythical being want to make something out of mud? What's the motivation for that? And instead of asking for that motivation, let's just say the mythical being created the world out of mud. We don't know what the motives are. But if we imagine motives, we're imagining that that being is a being like you or me. And I really want to stress that we don't do that. And this is my critique of Dundas. And also it will be my critique of the psychoanalytic approach. Now, that psychoanalytic approach, incidentally, loves the Greek traditions. And you can understand why. The Greek myths, they're full of personalities. You've got sons who kill their fathers and sleep with their mothers and or their sisters. They are ruthlessly fickle and deceptive. They just resemble the characters out of, um, dare I say it, Game of Thrones or The Bold and the Beautiful, if you're old enough and you watch too much bad television to know The Bold and the Beautiful. It, the myths themselves seem to be like soap operas. And they're full of all sorts of little this and gossip and nastiness and this and that and loads of sex. And so it's just perfect for serialization. And indeed, Victorian England in the 19th century, when it was madly appropriating not only the marbles from the Parthenon, but through its classical studies programs, it was also appropriating the mythologies of these parts of the world. And then in the artwork, like this painting here of Echo and Narcissus from 1903 by John Waterhouse, they're appropriating the artistic traditions as well. And so you're seeing this real renaissance of the glass of the classical traditions but it's a process of sort of incorporation and in good old prudish victorian england uh they really loved these um they loved these stories and they loved look at this painting by waterhouse i mean talk about sorry erotic art um i was going to use another word um but it's you know it's the fascinating thing about these Greek mythical figures, of course, is that they rarely seem to be able to wear any clothes. Um, and so yeah, these artistic traditions, <laughs> these houses that are covered in these sort of erotic art. Um, and this is one that I particularly like um, and because it has two mythical figures about whom I want to say something, Echo and Narcissus. And I'll say something about their myth a little bit later. Okay, so that, you know, what we've got then with the Greek mythical tradition is a tradition that kind of screams out for that kind of psychologistic approach. And that's why I want to really take them on it to make a case that we don't do that. And that, that's, you know, so I'm, I'm being very deliberate in choosing choosing this one and this renaissance and the renaissance of classical art and so on uh, is also there in the work of Sandro Botticelli's The Birth of Venus or The Birth of Aphrodite and I'll be talking about this myth in a second so that's why I included that in uh, in the tradition I just want you all just to pause though and look at this painting I mean it's you know it's regarded as a masterpiece etc 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 very famous you've probably seen it before and so on but just stop and have a look it's sort of an extraordinary 
an extraordinary painting that's describing a moment in the Greek cosmogonic mythical cycle. But doing so by add, but adding in these other figures, winged figures, uh, and so on who are there, you know, and somebody who's and some sort of, uh, lady in waiting who's about to sort of cover up, um, uh, Venus, Aphrodite's, uh, nakedness. Um, and the coyness of it too. I just, you know, I just think it's just a remarkable piece of, of, of art. Um, and this is the kind of thing that the emerging Italian middle class bankers um, in in Venice uh, and places were, were sticking on the walls of their houses. I just find it fascinating that this is what's going on at the time. But anyway, let's have a look consideration of the myth itself. My apologies in advance to those of you who know this. Sorry if you're going to be bored. And my apologies to uh, those of you who um, know how to pronounce the names better than I'm about to pronounce them. So two, two pronunciation. I also apologise for the format in which I'm presenting this origin myth. Um, the reason being is that the best I can do with PowerPoint is give you an organisational chart <laughs> rather, than, rather than a genealogy. Uh, so my mythology of the mythology is contained somewhat within the framework of the business world and the business orientation of, of PowerPoint. But anyway, it works. In the beginning, we have chaos, the chasm, the abyss. Recall last week where I used the Rig Veda, a, a primordial condition of nothingness. Out of which, though, emerges first Gaia, the earth. And then immediately with Gaia, the earth, is Tartarus, the underworld, and Eros, emotion. So that as soon as Gaia is born of the original chaos, also born are Tartarus and Eros. And when I say born, I'll use that language, but it's not born so much as brought into manifestation or made manifest, made real in the world. Then descending, and you can see my organisational chart, descending from Gaia, who gives birth to the figures of Pontos, Uria, Uranos, Erebus and Nyx, the sea, the mountains, the sky, the darkness, the night. Now, these are mythical beings and titans in the sense of being original beings prior to the gods, but they also reflect physical aspects of the, of the universe as we know it, the sea, the mountains, the sky, darkness, and also night, day and night. So this is what the cosmogony is describing. It's describing this coming into being, but it does it, interestingly, as a kind of genealogy, so that emerging from Gaia are the following, and then emerging from them, in turn, are other aspects which are extensions of what they are themselves, and hence from Erebus, darkness, and Nux, the night, you see uh, uh, ether, the glowing upper atmosphere, and Hemera, the day. So one generates or, or births the other from Nikes only. Uh, and now we start drilling down into more complex aspects of the world and the cosmos as we know it. We find moros, doom, care, fate, thanatos, death, hypnos, sleep, oneros, dream, momos, blame, oesis, pain, nemesis, indignation. Now, some of these terms might be uh, apparent to you, and then you might be saying, oh, hang on, oh, so... Hypnosis 
comes from the Greek mythical being hypnos, sleep. And nemesis, indignation. People can talk about their nemesis. And it comes from this character for indignation. And then we find, too, that Nyx or Nyx remains the woman of darkness, the woman of the night, so to speak. The figure of night, but it's, it takes on this characteristic of, of the female, as does indeed Gaia. Gaia takes on this character of of the female, being the primordial female, and as such, the primordial mother. But Gaia um, unites with uh, the primordial male, Uranus, the sky. And so you see then in that very first separation from the original chaos is the creation of earth and sky. But that creation of earth and sky is also the creation of female and male. In what I present from now on, you can see that I'm trying to depict the gender of the particular uh, characters using the symbol of a triangle or a circle. These are commonly used in anthropology in in kinship diagrams, so that a a triangle figure is is male and a circle figure figure is female. And I note that in those diagrams it is a binary. It's a binary distinction, male-female, that's being used. I'm also using a colour coding so that where I've got white text, it's male, and yellow text is female. But I know that some people have issues with colour, seeing the colour, so but you can also see the, the triangle and the, and the circle. Now, the reason why it's important is that this is a mythology, then, that becomes heavily gendered. And as it becomes heavily gendered, it becomes strongly binary in nature in that you keep finding certain types of duality and and things that are placed in relation to each other. Earth placed in relation to sky, for example. Light in relation to dark. And so you'll see a series of, 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 if you like, binary opposites emerging uh, very quickly, and this is part of the process of the differentiation of the world. That fundamental differentiation, though, is first and foremost the male and female, and we find this in the in the union of Gaia and Uranus, and they give that between them give birth to the twelve titans. And here are some of the examples. Oceanos, the sea, and Tethys, the sea. Now, Oceanos and Tethys. Um, they themselves, hence the way I've set it out in this slide, they insert in, they, they spawn Asia, uh, and Metis. And so that's why it's indented. So that, that they are, the, in a sense, the daughters of, um, the daughters of, uh, Oceanos and Tethys. And then you can see the son of, uh, the, the, the son, S-O-N, son, of Hyperion, the sun, uh, is Helios. Hyperion, though, is the sun, but Hyperion is framed in relation to Thea, the moon. So immediately again you see this creation of a duality, so that we have father uh, father and mother, um, sky and earth, sun and moon, and so on and then further differentiation so that within the framework of the sun and the moon, we find the dawn, for example, Eos. Um, Further on, you see the titan Coas, intelligence, uh, links with Phoebe, shining, and they give birth to Leto and also Zeus, see more below. And then unions from there, we find further development, Apollo, Artemis, and then further down, we see Asclepius healing. Now, this is just a fragment. I'm just presenting a fragment of this 
unbelievably complex and highly detailed um, uh, genealogy, which is the cosmology. So it's like, you know, the, the universe comes into being in, in Hesiod's Theogony, the birth of the gods, comes into being through this elaborate process of differentiation of all of the different aspects that make up the universe. And they include, and this is where I want to move on and not dwell too much, but Kronos, time, and Rhea, the ground. Now, the critical thing in this mythology, and according to the Hesiod uh, version, Gaia and Uranus are locked in a permanent embrace. Uranus will not, as it were, extract himself from Gaia. So all of the Titans are born and trapped inside the body of Gaia. They can't come into the world or be in the world because of this uh, condition of um, enclosure uh, which has been created by Uranus. So the sky has enveloped the earth and wrapped it in itself. And it's a world of darkness uh, without difference, without differentiation, until Kronos, time, um, finds a way out of that impasse. Um, and the way that Kronos, uh, the way that Kronos does that is he uh, creates a sickle, a knife, uh, a, a knife that's used, you know, in harvesting crops, and with that sickle he castrates his father Uranus. So Kronos then cuts off the genitalia of uh, uh, of Uranus. And the genitalia fall away and fall into the ocean. And it's when they fall away that the connection between Gaia and Uranus is ruptured. And as that connection occurs, Uranus floats off into the, into the, into the atmosphere. And so we get the full separation then of sky and earth but it's done by the act of time. So that we have the origins of time, chronos, hence our words like chronology, etc., come from chronos. And indeed, chronos becomes a mythical figure um, also known as father time uh and 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 has certain other mythical associations that we can see in different different places but we'll just stick with the fact that chronos castrates his mother and with that is able to uh himself move out into the world where he unites with raya his his um uh or well, one of his sisters uh, but also a titan. Now, these are some of the other titans that appear. Um, we don't, uh, you know, I'm just presenting them for your general sort of awareness of that multiplicity and also take note here of um, the origins of Prometheus because we'll be getting on to Prometheus in a little bit. Um Okay, so this is the sense of the creation of the cosmos in the Greek mythology. Now, where did I get back to? I just have to find my Kronos and Rhea again without getting too much detail. Right, there we are. Okay, so just quickly, um, uh, other titans uh, that later appear and then gods that appear from those other titans include, for example, the goddess Athena, uh, who is born of the union of the gods um, uh, of Zeus and the god of wisdom, Metis. But again, we'll come back to that. Just keep all of this stuff in mind. I really want you just to get a sense of this complex mythology. 
You're not having to remember it all. Just get a sense of it and some of the stuff that's going on. Now, Kronos, he's the interesting one because Kronos is the guy who basically gets the universe. He doesn't create the universe. That's Gaia. But Kronos, the son of Gaia and Uranus, is the agent of the further creation after his act of violence where he basically cuts off the genitalia of his father and by cutting off the genitalia, enabling then the, the, the mother, Gaia, her body to open and by opening, enabling these figures to be born in the world. But Kronos then unites with Rhea. So you see again then that union of male and female. And now we're not seeing a permanent um, embrace. What we see is that every time Rhea gives birth to a child, Kronos swallows it. So Kronos where it was Gaia whose body was enveloped and thereby the birth couldn't happen. So effectively every child born of Gaia and Uranus was, as it were, symbolically swallowed by Gaia. What we have now in this next generation down is we don't have a sense of permanent embrace. We've shifted the logic from the from the mother to the father, and now the father, Kronos, is behaving like the enclosing body, but it's his own body as he now swallows every product of union, and that includes Hades, the god of the underworld, Demeter, the god the goddess of the harvest, Hestia, we encountered last year, architecture, the hearth, the home, Hera, the goddess of women, Poseidon, the sea, Zeus, sky and thunder. And Zeus becomes the key figure now. Because what's happening to them all is that they're all being swallowed by their father as they are born. When it gets to the point when Zeus is born, Rhea, instead of handing over the latest infant for her husband brother to swallow, uh, Rhea gives Kronos a rock. And Kronos then swallows the rock instead of God. The God is now able to be free. And so it's not then an act of the son castrating the father, as Kronos castrated Uranos to be free. It's he now basically forces him to swallow a rock so that he can be free. This prompts uh, Kronos to regurgitate all the other gods. And so Kronos then vomits or regurgitates the gods and goddesses into existence. So the point then that I'm wanting you to pick up is that you're seeing a transformation along a theme of enclosure and opening. But now it's a theme of swallowing and regurgitating. So where Gaia was enclosed, Kronos swallowed where Gaia is opened through the act of violence, the castration of Uranus, Kronos is opened through the act of violence, which is the rock that forces the the act of regurgitation. Now, much further down the track, we find uh, Narcissus and Echo, who are nymphs. And they feature in the mythology that develops around the various deceits and deceptions of Zeus and Hera. Hera being the goddess of women, 
Zeus being the god of thunder, and Zeus being the dominant god because it's Zeus who usurps the position of his father, Kronos, by being born free, as it were, and not swallowed. But Zeus then engages in his own acts of swallowing, such as, for example, uh, swallowing uh, Metis, um, which I mentioned just before. And so you see these themes reappearing uh, all the time, themes of what I'm calling swallowing and regurgitation, enclosing and opening, uh, moving into the darkness and moving into the light. And so you get this sense of a pulsating, of a pulsating uh, universe. Now, in the story of Narcissus and Echo, uh, and I mentioned them in the picture before, uh, we have the story of Echo, uh, who attempts to hide Zeus's infidelity. So Zeus is having it off with another nymph, and Hera is not to know that this is occurring. So Echo distracts Hera by just endlessly talking to her. When Hera finds out that she's not only been deceived, but she's been deceived by this nymph who's been talking all the time, uh, Hera curses Echo to only ever repeat what others have said. And this then creates the sad tale of Echo and Narcissus because Echo is unable to communicate to the great love of her life, Narcissus. She can't warn him to avoid looking at his own reflection because Narcissus has also been cursed, but he's been cursed by a figure called Amenius. Uh, Amenius, a figure who was so obsessed with the beauty of Narcissus that he was desperately in love with him, desperately wanted to take him as his partner. Uh, but, um, uh, it was never ever um, recognized by Narcissus, and so Aminus, as Aminius, as he committed suicide, he also com- he also cursed Narcissus to only ever love himself, and so Narcissus then falls in love with his own reflection in a pond, and spends all of his time waiting for this person to come out of the pond and there's echo saying trying to say you know whatever you do don't look at your own reflection uh but she can't because she's been cursed to only ever be an echo of others and so the myth not only not only does the myth give us this uh sense of same-sex relationships which i think in other mythical traditions is like ooh, we won't talk about that um, but it also gives us a myth about the nature of self-love and the dangers of basically swallowing oneself so that the narcissist, narcissist you could say, is the figure who swallows himself or, you know, fails to break the enclosure of that kind of self-consuming uh, lap. In the same way, Echo is also in the condition of just continual repetition of the same. That she's similarly, she's locked in the same sort of world. Now, the reason why then I mentioned Narcissus and Echo is I can say that, you know, the myth of Narcissus and Echo, which is a separate side myth, but it's a, it's a myth that plays upon the same themes as what's there in the cosmogony. The themes of what I call swallowing and regurgitation. The sense that... So, Gaia doesn't swallow her children. She just can't give birth to her children. But I can look at that as symbolically swallowing her own children. Kronos literally swallows his children and he is forced to vomit them up or regurgitate them up. Narcissus, obsessed with his own reflection, is not swallowing himself, but we can think of it metaphorically as swallowing himself, unable to break out of this permanent circle, self-consuming circle 
in the same way that echo cursed is is cursed into a condition which harkens back to the original condition of that swallowed and contained world. And so it's seen as a form of return to the beginning, endless return to the beginning of the same thing until it's broken. And the act of creation is an act of rupture from from a primordial condition. That primordial condition is symbolised most strongly, and it's the symbol that I'm going to use, by the symbol of the Ouroboros, the serpent that eats its own tail. It's thought of as a symbol of infinity. It's also, I would suggest, not simply a symbol of infinity, it's also a symbol of chaos. That is to say, it's a primordial symbol. And it's a theme that we can see developing in multiple ways. And I've just given you some examples of Kronos, Gaia, Zeus, and also Narcissus and Echo, that these are all multiple transforms on this basic point. So that they're mythical expressions, unique stories. The angry hearer cursing Echo, Echo gossiping furiously with Hera to try to distract her. You know, it's, it's your Game of Thrones stuff. It's your bold and beautiful stuff, but it's giving expression to certain cosmological principles about the birth of the universe. And so it is itself a commentary on those those cosmological principles, which I'm referring to as swallowing and regurgitating and the dynamism of swallowing and regurgitating the universe in this cycle of swallowing and regurgitating. And so these different mythical traditions take their logic from this logic and play this logic of the logic of swallowing and regurgitating. They play it out. Staggeringly, in playing out this logic of swallowing and regurgitating, we also see the theme of deception enter into the mythology. Rhea tricks Kronos to swallow a rock. That act of trickery, that act of deception is the act that creates the rapture that allows creation to occur. It's trickery that Echo tries to use on Hera when she keeps talking to her to distract her. It's trickery that causes Narcissus to fall in love with his own reflection unaware that it's his own reflection, he thinks it's somebody else that he's in love with and he's waiting for them to get out of the pond. And, of course, they're never going to get out of the pond because they are him. So we can see, too, entering into the mythologies, this theme of deception and this theme of trickery. That sense of deception and trickery then plays itself out in other mythical traditions, principally those associated with the creation of humans and the creation of the condition of mortality and or sickness and mortality. And they relate to the figure of Prometheus, whose meaning is pro-metis, pre-metis, wise before the fact. Because it is Prometheus who creates people called humans. And he makes them out of clay. Oh, golly. Ooh. And let's start talking about his motives. No, we will not talk about his motives. We will take note of the fact that Prometheus creates humans out of clay. End of story. He 
then instructs these humans to make an offering of sacrifice to the god Zeus. But he asks God Zeus, which of the offerings will Zeus take and which will he keep for the humans? He presents two different kinds and lets Zeus decide. One is just made up of the skin and bones of the animal that is the sacrificial victim. The rest, the flesh of the animal, the edible part of the animal, is hidden inside the animal's own stomach and presented as a rather ugly um, and unappealing um, thing. Zeus accepts the bones and the skin, which is made to resemble the creature itself. So it still looks like uh, a, a cow. Um, but it has nothing on the inside. The inside is somewhere else. And so Zeus effectively receives nothing from this act of sacrifice. But from hereafter, this is what the god will get and this is what the humans will keep. Zeus is unimpressed by this deception. And he condemns, he refuses to give the power to create fire through thunderbolts um, so that they can actually cook their sacrificial offering. So Prometheus travels up to uh, the domain of the gods and he finds the god Hephaestus, Hephaestus being the god of the forge, the god of blacksmithing. Um, he uh, He's the god who makes steel products, etc. And he has a fire for making his metal products. And from this fire, Prometheus steals fire and hides it inside a, the, the stalk of a fennel plant where it keeps smouldering, a bit like a fire stick, you could say, but it's hidden it's a, and it's a trick. And so he's now stolen fire from the gods. And so Zeus says, you can't have fire. Prometheus says, oh, well, I'll get my own. And so we have the origins of fire, the human capacity to make fire through this act of theft and deception. So Zeus bides his time and says, "Radio, we will then, uh, we'll give you another gift. We're going to give you something called woman. And he creates the first woman, Pandora, and makes her the recipient of a whole range of gifts from all of the gods. So they all give her something. But she's given by Zeus to a jar. And into this jar, they put all of the sources of sickness in the world. They're all locked inside this jar and and Pandora is told on no account are you to open this jar. Do not open the jar. Uh, But, of course, Pandora, uh, who is also given the quality of fickleness by the gods, says, oh, hang on, I'll open the jar, and immediately opens the jar, and all of the forms of sickness and suffering escape from the jar, leaving humans not only now as men and women, but also mortal subject to sickness, disease, suffering and death. And so we have in the creation uh, by this relation through Prometheus, we have the creation of humanity, but the creation of human mortality as well. Now, this has very strong parallels with other mythical traditions that should be very familiar to many of you. Okay. Now, the critical thing in all of this, then, is that, yes, there is an awful lot of sex that's going on. It's a genealogy. This is a very, if you'd like, family-friendly mythology in that the gods are born of sexual union and so on. But they're also born of processes of self-creation and self-generation. So we don't think about these gods as basically having sex in the way that we um, might uh, or do. Um, Those of us who are happy enough and lucky enough. 
instead think of their sexuality as being about their being in the world, about being forces and elements and aspects of the world in union. But it creates a narrative whereby they become people-like, but we don't necessarily have to understand them as people rather than people-like. But this is a mythology which is giving voice then to an imagination that is thinking about things like echoes, reflections, darkness, night, etc., etc., etc. It's a way that human being through this mythology is looking at the world and everything in it with a sense of wonder and then generating the narrative that try to pull it all together. And that's what we have with the Greek mythology as an, just an example of a mythology. Okay, I've run over time. I'm sorry, I'm 10 minutes more than I should have. I thank everyone for hanging in there with me for all of this time. And I've got to the end at last. And we will now read the Vernon piece and we'll talk more about Prometheus and Pandora and the parallels in the seminars to come. So thanks very much, everyone, for tuning in and listening to that week number three lecture.